Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Which team has the most to gain in the Big Ten if they get it right in 2023? All that coming up with Fox Sports' Big Ten writer, Michael Cohen, right here on the show. Let's go. It's the number one college football show. What's up, kid folk? It's RJ Young. I am not on a step mill. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, talking to Big Ten writer at Fox Sports, Michael Cohen, about what is at stake for the Big Ten in 2023, the landscape in 2024. He has a big feature out on Penn State and Wisconsin. You should go read. We're going to talk through those. And what do we expect from Ohio State and Michigan in 2023? Let's go talk to Mike. I'm pleased to be joined by Big Ten writer for Fox Sports, my buddy, Michael Cohen. Mike, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, RJ. It's great to see you. You too, brother. Uh, We got a couple weeks before the season starts, which means that your features that you've been working on all summer are beginning to come out. And the one that I want to start with is your story about Luke Fickle and Wisconsin on FoxSports.com. It is called Luke uh, Luke Fickle's Wisconsin Vision, Protect the Past While Charting a New Course. I'm going to start this by saying Fickle told you a story about Coach Cooper. Uh, that'd be John Cooper, who was at Ohio State when he was being recruited there. And I'm also going to pop my collar here and say John Cooper was a Tulsa Golden Hurricane man before he was an Ohio State man. But the way that he had recruited him was by saying, hey, look, my kid could have gone anywhere. He decided to come play with me. I'm going to treat all of these boys that I'm recruiting from moms like my own son. What do you think? Is that going to work in today's day and age? Really good question. You know, I think he's a guy who attacks recruiting in a way that very few coaches do and that he truly enjoys it 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. I think most coaches in college football understand that they have to do it every day, all year round, but not all of them enjoy it. And I think Fickle genuinely does. Um, You know, there are coaches who preach the family vibe that aren't quite really family men and Fickle really is. You know, part of the reason he stayed in the state of Ohio for as long as he did at at, uh, Ohio State and then Cincinnati was that he didn't want to uproot his family. You know, he's got six kids, two sets of twins. Um, They're very close with a lot of people in Ohio. And so I think it can work only because he is genuinely backing it up with what he does off the field. If you preach family, but then you don't really show it within your program, your wife's not coming around, your kids aren't coming around, the assistant coaches can't really have their families around either. I think that then rubs kids the wrong way. 
But if you preach family and then they see family, I think that that hits home for a lot of these guys. And because remember, these are these are young men that when they're coming through for unofficial and official visits are anywhere between the ages of 16 and 18, sometimes even younger for these camps and things. So these are guys that are still looking for family and they want to go to a place where they can feel safe. And if you can preach it and show it, that's better than just doing one or the other. As large as the University of Wisconsin is, it has always struck me as a very tight knit, close community. Knowing a lot of alumnus that come from alumni, excuse me, that come out of that place, uh, not to say nothing of of what the football program has been able to do, but a big reason that they're able to keep that kind of culture intact is on a football field, it doesn't much change. And a stat from your story: 31 offensive linemen, 13 running backs drafted, more than a dozen 10 win seasons, six Big Ten championships. And a stat that I found, 21 straight winning seasons and not one single appearance in the national title game this century. Question is, do you think Luke Fickle thinks he can do what Barry Alvarez couldn't, which is win a national championship? I think he does. You know, Luke Fickle is a guy who had plenty of opportunities to leave Cincinnati over the course of his time there. His Bearcats teams were performing so well and so consistently that he was basically the biggest name in the coaching carousel, him and Matt Rule together for like a couple of years. As soon as, you know, they started to win big, especially when they went to the college football playoff, the first group of five school to reach the college football playoff. You know, so I think he had his choice of places he wanted to go, wanted to go. And he handpicked essentially Wisconsin for a lot of different reasons. One, he's a Big Ten guy through and through, having played nose tackle at Ohio State, 50 straight games um, without missing a game in the 90s. And so he knows that program. He's competed against that program. He's coached against that program. But I think he also understood what that place is like. You know, a lot of people, myself included, before I moved to the Midwest, I had absolutely no idea what Madison was like. And then the first time that I went there, it is an unbelievable place. I mean, that campus is located on a little spit of land in Isthmus in between two lakes that are giant and people are boating in the winter. They're ice fishing. It's a beautiful place. Families love it. Um, it's a very progressive place. So it, not only was it a situation where I think he believes he can win, but I think it's a place where he thought he could win and want to stay there for a really long time. Not unlike what we just heard Brett Bielema say recently, like he feels at home in Champaign. I think Luke Fickle feels at home in Wisconsin. And, and one of my favorite anecdotes from the story was when I talked to Jim Tressel. And Jim Tressel said, every time I talk to Luke on the phone now, he's trying to get me to come to Madison and says, you got to come up here for longer than just a game because these people are amazing. This place is amazing. So from the resources, the commitment, the passion, being the only Division I football program in the state, I think he views this as a place that has some untapped potential in the modern era. And I think he's going to push as hard as he can because he does believe that they can win a national title there. That point you just made is the one to raise for me, right? The one where they are the only Division I program in the state, and the state is very much aware of that, right? They kind of built it out that way so that Wisconsin always has an opportunity to contend. I want to follow on that because Luke Fickle has had a really interesting journey, if not a very cool journey, having played for John Cooper on 90s teams that were just good enough but not that good, right? Winning good enough to win national championships. We know what O2 was about for Ohio State. We know that he helped groom a guy like Marcus Freeman, a guy that I stand on the table for even now. And he was a part of that really rough transition from 2011 to 2012, where they were bad in 2011. They were undefeated in 2012 and stayed on until they won a national championship at Ohio State in 2014. And then, again, making history again with Cincinnati being the first G5 team to make the playoff. I'm very excited to see what he can do at Wisconsin. I'm really 
I'm fascinated what you think about Tanner Mordecai. And the reason I say this is I've known Tanner since he was in high school uh, at Waco Midway. And he's always been a dude that can sling it. He's always been a dude that's been laid back with his Southern drawl and doesn't have a whole lot to say. But it says something to me that Phil Longo said, no, 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 I need to go get him. And that Tanner has ingratiated himself into Wisconsin's ideology and how it goes about its business, not the other way around. Do you think there's reason to believe that Tanner Mordecai can not just break records set by Russell Wilson as lofty as this seems? Russ is the only dude to throw for 3,000 yards in the season in Wisconsin, which tells you everything you need to know about Wisconsin football. But to lead them perhaps to a Big Ten championship. Man, I mean, this is a it's a year as always. I feel like we can say this every year that the Big Ten West is wide open because the Big Ten West is always wide open. But Wisconsin has a chance to get there, and it's because largely of Tanner Mordecai. And I think the biggest thing that that you hit on that I want to talk about is how he ingratiated himself to the program. Because when I asked Luke straight up, I said, did you think that this was a guy that A, could help you win, but B, could help grow your program knowing that he's only going to have one year of eligibility left? And Fickle said, yes, absolutely. He said, I can tell you about his arm. I can tell you about all the throws he can make, all those types of things. But it's the stuff that he's done off the field to help lay the foundation and solidify the foundation of what uh, Luke Fickle and offensive coordinator Phil Longo want to do that they believe is going to be his lasting legacy, that he can show these guys, these younger transfers. Because remember, they took two other transfers in the portal at quarterback as well. It wasn't just Tanner Mordecai. So they are trying to build for the future with, uh, with Braden Locke. And, and with Evers from Oklahoma. And these are guys that they think can build for the next couple of seasons if Mordecai can help lay the foundation, show them how to work, show them how to succeed at this level. So I think he's going to sling it around. I don't know exactly how much talent they have at wide receiver. You know, Wisconsin's always going to have tight ends. That doesn't bother me at all. But I think when you have two really good running backs and you want to sling it around, I'm, I'm not quite sure what it's going to look like. I almost wonder if it'll look a little bit more like what Longo's offense was at North Carolina a few years ago where he had 2,000 yard rushers in the same season. So are they going to try and accommodate the run a little bit more early until they can, you know, start to work into the pass game? I'm fascinated to see what it looks like, but I think he's going to come really, really close, if not breaking those uh, records that Russell Wilson said. And here's another stat for you on that front, RJ. Russell Wilson's the last Wisconsin quarterback to get drafted. Given the identity at Wisconsin, right? They want to run the football. 28,000-yard rushers, this is from your story, five 2,000-yard rushers in 30 years. My goodness, the the number of tailbacks I can think of off the top of my head, Monty Ball, Melvin Gordon, Jonathan Taylor, Ron Dane, right? Do you think that Braylon Allen can join this club of exclusively great Wisconsin tailbacks? Man, I mean, I don't think he's getting to 2,000 yards. I mean, that group you read off, not only are they – some of the best running backs in recent memory, but like statistically, those are some of the best running backs college football has ever seen because a lot of those guys stayed for four years. Mm -hmm. And so I think Braylon Allen is going to be one of the better tailbacks in the big 10 this year, but you got to remember he's splitting reps a little bit with Ches Malusi as well. And so I think it's going to be maybe like a 65, 35, kind of a split 70, 30, somewhere in there. So he's not going to have the type of numbers that maybe Chase Brown had at Illinois last year where he was just getting the rock 30 times a game. But I think Braylon Allen is really talented. And, and the big thing about this offense is, yes, it's derived from the air raid. But when I was talking to their athletic director, Chris McIntosh, he said, I want to make this very clear. We may pass the ball more this season than we have in recent years, but really what this is about is spreading a team out to help facilitate the running game because essentially everyone knew Wisconsin wanted to run the football over and over and over again under Paul Christ. 
And so because of that, they were doing it against eight and nine man boxes at times. And essentially now, if you spread the field with a couple tight ends, with three wide receivers, whatever the case may be, there's the idea that there will be more space for the running back because the defense just has to cover more of the 53 and a third yards, the width of the field. So I think he's going to have chances to rip off bigger runs. He's not going to go three yards in a cloud of dust as often as he has in the past, but I don't quite see him getting into that group of the elite tailbacks, partially because he's going to be splitting time with Ches Malusi. I'm interested to see how this goes because I love the idea of Braylon Allen getting to see a six man box as much as anybody else. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say, Phil Longo had Michael Carter and Javante Williams in the same backfield, and they were destructive uh, with Sam Howell back there, and they threw the ball all over the yard. Is For me, it's not about whether or not you're going to be able to make people cover the length of the field. It's are you still going to be able to pop through to the second level and then see nobody else? This is what made Blake Corum such a threat at Michigan is you would load the box, and then they would block you out of the box, and there he goes, and you can't catch him. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But I, I understand why they are modernizing the offense and giving themselves more opportunities to move the football as opposed to, damn, now it's starting long. What are we going to do? I'm excited about that. Uh, Mike, changing from Wisconsin to Michigan real quick. I got him number two in my preseason top 25. I've been thinking about Michigan in terms of what it is that they need to achieve and not what they've already done. That might seem a little bit fair, uh, unfair, I should say. But when you have the idea that you don't need to put together a top five recruiting class and win a national championship. I understand that you want to believe that your roster is talented enough to do that. But how do you feel about a Michigan team that's been built the way it has, won Big Ten championships, but hasn't been able to win a college football playoff? Do you think it's about the roster? Or do you think it's about perhaps being outplayed and outworked? Yeah, that's it's really hard to figure it out. You know, I would say... I think there's a couple of factors involved, and I'll go through a couple of them here. I would say the first one is eventually not having the four and five star talent is probably going to catch up with you because a lot of times that four and five star talent has superior athletic traits, and that's why they're rated that high. I remember I was talking to Steve Wiltfong, the director of recruiting for 247 Sports once, and he told me that a lot of recruiting rankings are trait-based. So we're looking for, are you a plus athlete? Do you have plus speed? Do you have plus size? And they're not necessarily grading these people on how good of football players they are in that moment. It's trying to project what they can be based on the traits that they have. So eventually those traits are going to shine through and it, it happens with depth. So if there was a position where Michigan had a rash of injuries, I think that could then be a problem, maybe with the exception of offensive line. Um, but that is one area where they've been very fortunate the last couple of years is that they have been an extremely healthy team at a lot of key positions for them, even positions where they didn't have a lot of depth. I guess I would say in the big scheme of things, when they get to these big moments, the things that have made the difference for me is oddly enough, the offensive line. And this is a group that won the Joe Moore award award that an award that I know that you take very seriously. Um, they won it two years in a row and then they went to the biggest stage. And at first they were taken apart by a generational Georgia defense that I don't really think anybody faulted them for having trouble with given the number of draft picks and talent that was on that roster. But then when TCU did it similarly, not in terms of sacking the quarterback, but in terms of 12 and a half or 13 tackles for loss in one game, you start to wonder, okay, when they go outside the big 10, is there a speed problem? Is there a strength problem? Is there a scheme problem? So my thing is they have to get over that hump 
by proving they can do it against a really good team from outside the smash mouth Big Ten Conference. And over time, I think eventually they're going to have to find guys at the skill positions. And when I say skill position, I mean receiver that can compete on the edges with some of these four and five star corners because you've got to win in the air eventually. And they haven't been able to do that yet. Win in the air when people expect you to throw it too, because one of the things that I've also been really interested in seeing, and JJ McCarthy's been great on great on play action, but it, it's really difficult to say that that's a great quarterback if that scheme is just not working the way it does because of Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards. I think you're on to something when you talk about how we look at this team and, uh, from a depth standpoint, because nobody wants to talk about teams as if they're going to sustain injury, even though that's exactly what happens and how deep you can go matters in as far as how far you can go. I guess the other counterpoint to this would be, is Michigan the best in the country at overdeveloping talent? Yeah, I mean, that's so I don't want to give away exactly one of the stories that I'm working on. But when you were talking about the preseason, you know, big features that I've been working and spending a lot of time on, my Michigan angle is related to how they go about developing this talent, because I think that is the most fascinating part. They have a culture right now and a scientific approach right now and a staff right now that is doing every single thing they possibly can to maximize player development. And I think they're getting more support from uh, the dietitians of the world, from the sports performance aspects of the world. They have everything they could possibly want from a staff perspective, from a resource perspective, and they're using it about as well as anybody in the country. And I just think the way that they're training, and again, I'm being a little bit vague on purpose because I have a story coming out in a couple of weeks that explores this in more detail, um, but essentially they have found ways to train this as much as they train this. And that I think is the biggest biggest factor for them right now. They are finding for, for ways to For our podcast become... listeners, you're pointing to your head and you were pointing to your muscle. Sorry, forgot. That, we that's forgot okay. There's that's all right. No, it's all right. They have found a way to train their brain as much mm -hmm. as they have found a way to train the muscles. And, the, and what that has done is allow them to believe that they're stronger, believe that they're better, believe that they're faster than guys who are probably actually bigger and stronger and faster than them, but they just want it more and they're tougher. And if they get smacked in the mouth, they don't care because their mind is so elitely, it's so it's sharpened to such an elite level that they are just, it's, it's, it's impressive the way this machine is humming right now. And so that I think is the biggest thing. They're combining you know, players that want to work hard and want to get better with elite mental toughness that, you know, quite frankly, has trumped their biggest rival the last two years. I think it's an interesting place to build your program from because you, you'll know I, I am a self-made man, right? I believe in hustle. I believe in outworking people. I believe that skill will make up for what talent doesn't do. But it is one thing to be in that mindset. It is another thing to know that you're supposed to win national championships. And that's what I think I'm looking for from Michigan and frankly what I'm looking for from Penn State. Now, you have a feature out that we can talk about on Penn State and going into this year 10 with James Franklin. I want to start with this. Uh I think I agree with you in that is this the most talented Penn State team that James Franklin has ever had? I say yes, and when I was out in state college a little while ago, I I flat out asked some of the players like is this the most talented team and and Keandre Lambert Smith, their number one wide receiver said not only is this the most talented team in recent memory, he said it might be one of the most talented Penn State teams ever. And so, again, this isn't a guy who was necessarily alive and old enough to understand how good some of those Joe Pa teams were back in the day, but that's a pretty big statement. And if you believe it, 
you know, then then that's all that matters. So, I, I, you know, for me, this is a team that has a ton of talent right now. But RJ, I, I got to think you agree with me that so much of it hinges on Drew Aller and how much can you reasonably expect from a sophomore quarterback? You know, you put a lot of time into studying these quarterbacks. Are you buying that he can come in and contribute as a as a true sophomore? And then let me just add this quick caveat, which is can Penn State do use the Cade McNamara plan, which is essentially let's hand the ball to Nick Singleton and Katron Allen the way we handed it to Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards and ask Cade McNamara to do the minimum amount, but he will do it very well because he's efficient. And is that a plan that Penn State should use with Drew Aller this season? I'll pick it up and take it a step farther. I think you use the plan you used for J.J. McCarthy last year. He's got that sort of talent. He can move and he can sling it. Everybody's seen the arm talent. Everybody's seen him throw rockets. It's do you trust him to make those play action throws? And if Nick Singleton and Katron Allen are doing this year what they did last year, you also have guys on the end of those passes to go along with Keandre Lambert, Dante Cephas, and really talented tight ends that can take advantage of that to say nothing of what you could do on just dump routes to guys like Nick Singleton and, and Katron Allen, who are really outstanding prospects. And the defense is going to give them a lot, give him a lot of help. Like let, let's not be shy about that. He's going to get the ball back and he's going to get it in plus situations because Manny Diaz has been so good at that. I think it's less for me about can Drew, uh, Aller do that and more. You think Mike Yersich is going to let him like, so we're talking about it, right? What's your sense from the offensive coordinator? How does he feel about his starting quarterback? I mean, they, they love everything he can do and they've been in on him from the very beginning. You know, one of the stats in the story is that when they offered him a scholarship, he was ranked outside the top 400 prospects. He was a three-star guy when they offered him. And then he became a four-star guy and became a five-star guy and had a great elite 11 finals and all this stuff to blow up. But they've been in on Drew Aller from the beginning. And so they really think that he has the opportunity to be special. Will they let him? I'm not really sure. And and that's the tricky part, right? It's And it's the same question we asked about Michigan last year. When are they going to let J.J. McCarthy throw the ball? But I'm curious about how they're going to approach in-game management because the two stats in the research for this story that really blew my mind is that James Franklin has only won one of his last 10 or 11 games, I can't quite remember, against top 10 teams. So he's basically, you know, one in nine, one in 10, whatever it is over the last six years. And during that span, they've lost 12 one-score games. So how are you getting over the hump in these games that you're losing by a field goal or a touchdown or one point? What are you trying to do? How do you find that last little 1%? And that was kind of the, the onus of the story is what are they trying to do to get over that hump? And they're, they're basically adapting the Michigan plan from after they lost to Georgia, uh, which is we just have to outwork everybody. We have to outhustle everybody. We have to change our habits. We have to be very disciplined. And if all those things come together, and when it matters, it will help us. But a lot of the in-game management, as you know, too, is coaching decisions. It's the key play calls in the big moments. It's going for it on fourth down or punting. It's kicking a field goal versus trying to punch it into the end zone when you're at the one-yard line, whatever the case may be. And so that's what I'm really curious about is can the staff make any adjustments to their in-game management or do they feel they need to to turn those very narrow losses into wins and then potentially, potentially try and push Michigan or Ohio State out of the Big Ten championship picture in that loaded East division. Hey, it comes down to don't get taken apart by JT Tui Moloau. You know, like that's that's it. They were winning that game against Ohio State. And then that dude just decided to wreck it. It's that. It's that simple for me. It's finishing games, which I think is really a conversation we have about many teams that are competing for their first college football playoff appearance. Uh, USC 
comes to mind for me. Can you finish games? I think they give up something like 17 points per game the, in the fourth quarter of their last four games out. It's it's really endemic across the sport, and it really separates the goods from the championship contenders. Um, let's go around the, the Big Ten for here for a second because I also know that you got to go up to Iowa City, spend some time with uh, the Iowa Hawkeyes since Cade McNamara's arrival. Didn't get to talk to him, haven't got to talk to him since he got to Iowa. What's your sense of Cade and what he expects at Iowa? I was blown away by talking to Cade because, again, for, for people who don't know, I live in the Michigan area, and so I was around Ann Arbor a lot when Cade was the starter. That was before I worked for Fox. I was covering Michigan specifically. So I saw every press conference he ever gave, every interview he ever gave. And as time went on, he just got more and more sullen and down and guarded because he knew there was going to be tons of questions about J.J. McCarthy, and he didn't want to answer them, and he felt pressured by that situation. When I saw him in Iowa City, which was about maybe a month ago now, he was, I mean, smiling from ear to ear, laughing, just having an unbelievable time. He told me it's the happiest he's ever been in his life, which for a guy that became the first Michigan quarterback to win a Big Ten championship in 17 years, that says something. He feels that this is the ideal spot for him. He's excited. He feels wanted. They told him straight up, you're the starter. There is no competition. This is your team. And when you say that to a guy that's coming off a big injury like Kate is having knee surgery, you know, that's that's empowering. It means something. And he loves everything that Kirk Ferentz does and has built there and the way he handles the program. So Cade is expecting this to be a very, very positive season for him and for Iowa. And I'll sum it up by saying I asked him, Cade, you know what your schedule looks like and you know what Michigan's schedule looks like. The only way you play each other is if it's the Big Ten Championship or the college football playoff. I said, what do you think about that? And he said, let's just say I hope it happens. He is a fiery man, if nothing else, right? And I remember talking with Jim Harbaugh last year, and he called Cade McNamara a young Jimmy Harbaugh. And then I come to find out that's really how Jim Harbaugh sees a lot of the players that are gritty, are tough, are nasty, who don't necessarily walk into this thing expecting to say nice things about their opponents. They expect to go beat up on their opponents. I really enjoy that. I thought it was interesting what you point out about how Kirk Ferentz has built the program and what he expects from Iowa, simply because this is a, it's a program that ain't won a Big Ten championship since 04. And it's a program that's been on the edge of doing just that and fallen short because of the offense. Like I, I want to be very clear about this. Phil Parker's defense has been the second best in the country for two consecutive years. Does Cade McNamara have what he needs around him to not just make that offense something like competent, but I would say the counterpoint would be, or the, the comparison I would make is Georgia in 2021. Can you stay out of the defense's way? Yeah, I think they can because Cade is a guy who is at all costs going to protect the football. He is the type of quarterback who, if you present him with a narrow window where he can throw it and try and thread it, and maybe it goes for a touchdown, or he can be safe and cautious and check it down or throw it out of bounds. He's checking it down or throwing it out of bounds every time. All he cares about is taking care of the football and giving his team the best chance to win. So he's not going to make mistakes. And I don't know if they have enough weapons for this passing offense to become dynamic. But when you add Eric All, his former Michigan teammate, and you pair him with Luke Lachey, a tight end who is the next great Iowa tight end, that gives him two options there. He's got a couple of returning receivers that they like, uh, Nico Regani being the veteran of the bunch there going into, I think, his sixth year or seventh year now. Um, and then, of course, they have uh, Caleb Brown, the transfer from Ohio State, who is 
you know, the, the biggest skill player that they've ever brought in at that position. And so I'm curious to see what it looks like. But at the end of the day, you and I both know this is a team that is going to win games in all three phases. It's going to be offense, defense, and special teams. And let's not forget, they have one of the best punters in the country too. And uh, that's going to be a big part of their narrative this season. So I think they have a chance to come out of that West and make it to the Big Ten title game. And it would be fascinating if they got a chance to play Michigan. So I think there will be enough improvement on offense for them to win somewhere between eight and 10 games this season. Corey Taylor for Heisman. I dare Iowa to send me the shirt. Uh, say I won't. Say I won't wear it. A couple more for you here before we let you go, Mike. Uh, Brian Day has won a college football playoff semifinal. He's at Ohio State. Jim Harbaugh has not. He's at Michigan. Lincoln Riley has not. He's at SC. Brian Kelly has not. He's at LSU, but he was at Notre Dame. <laughs> this would still be the case if Ohio State was 3-0 and against Michigan instead of 1-2. and what do you think about folks being tepid about Ohio State's national championship hopes and thinking about putting Ryan Day on a hot seat? I mean, it's preposterous to me, but we're in August and people still talk about it. I do not buy that he is on any kind of a hot seat right now. The only thing that I will say is if they were to lose to Michigan again this season and miss the college football playoff, then I think there will start to be legitimate questions asked about whether or not he is actually improving the trajectory of the program. It's one thing to keep it the same. It's one thing to continue recruiting at a high level. But if you're not trying, if you're not coming closer to tipping it over the edge and winning a national title or getting to that national title game, people will ask questions. Now, the flip side of that, of course, as you well know, RJ, is if that field goal goes in against Georgia, in all likelihood, you know, no disrespect to TCU, they probably bashed TCU's head in in the national championship game, maybe not quite to the degree that Georgia did but in a somewhat similar fashion. And we're now talking about Ryan Day having lost two games in a row to Jim Harbaugh, but having a national championship. And we would not be discussing this whatsoever. So that is the nature of the sport. That is the, 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 that's how fickle the beast can be. I don't think he's on the hot seat whatsoever, but I do think if he were to lose three in a row to Michigan, and if he were to then also fall out of the college football playoff, it becomes a little more of a problem. The caveat to that, or the asterisk that you put on that, is when we expand to 12 teams, it's not going to matter because Ohio State is almost certainly going to be in the playoff every single year or just about every single year. And then you can lose as many games in a row as you want to Michigan and still be in the playoff and have a chance to, to metaphorically cut down the nets, so to speak, to use the basketball analogy. Man, uh, you can take the guy out of UConn, take, take the UConn out of the guy on that one. I was, uh, we got a basketball reference here on this college football podcast. I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Uh, I want to just finish with that by saying... Ryan Day has produced a first-round quarterback. For, uh, each quarterback that started a game for him has been drafted in the first round. Kyle McCord started a game last year, quite as it's kept, and they're in the middle of a quarterback derby, but I expect him to get that right. Um, last one before I let you get out of here, Mike. This is the last year the Big Ten will be a 14-team conference. In 2024, they welcome SC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington. Which Big Ten team do you think has the most to gain if they get it right in 2023? Man, that is a really difficult question. Um, part of me wants to say Penn State because mm -hmm. I feel like they've been trapped in this Big Ten East for so long with Michigan and Ohio State that obviously they're still going to have to play great teams. Like it's not as if Oregon and Washington and USC will not be on their schedule, but all of a sudden they won't be guaranteed to have to play Michigan and Ohio State every single year. And let's not forget, we don't know what the scheduling model is going to look like. 
But if there is any sort of element that keeps these protected rivalries that, that we talked about earlier this summer, well, Penn State didn't have any of those. So mm -hmm. they have the most variance in their schedule year to year, which means that as the dice is rolled, eventually they're going to have a season that is lighter than others. It's just the way it goes when you don't have as many built-in games. So I think if Franklin can really perform well this season, if Drew Aller can really perform well, and then they get out and they, they free themselves from the shackles of that Big Ten East division, they could maybe be one of these teams that starts having a, a, a more consistent presence in the championship game conversation, whereas they've had to play second and third fiddle for basically the last seven or eight years. So Penn State would be my answer there. What do you think, RJ? Man, I'm really looking at Iowa going, make, make, do, it or do it or not. Right. Because that look, they don't really have a traditional rival in this conference either. Like we gave them Nebraska. Right. Uh, he's, he's six and oh against Minnesota. So Minnesota might think about it a little or since PJ Fleck got there, I should say. But I'm more interested in this idea of Penn State not having a traditional rival, because I'm also looking at this other team in Indiana that is holding on to its quasi independence for who knows how, how long, longer, I guess, as long as NBC continues to want Notre Dame football. But my point here is, if you know that Penn State is going to get that level of variance coming into 2024, wouldn't you want to take advantage of that, knowing that you already have a traditional rivalry game with SC, to which they would go, no, we, we actually like being a GDI. Uh, we like being an independent. On the flip side of this, Mike, which of the four teams do you think has the most to gain if they hit the ground running in 2024? UCLA, USC, Washington, or Oregon? Man, I... I really look at Oregon, and, and the reason I look at that is from a recruiting perspective, because they have the national brand. Of all those four teams, I'm not saying USC is not a national brand, but Oregon has Nike. Oregon has Phil Knight. Every kid in the country knows what Oregon's uniforms look like. And now, all of a sudden, when you can go anywhere you want, and there's basically a school in your conference within a few hours of that, unless you're basically going like into Texas or into Florida— and you can say, hey, come play in our league. And you're going to get a chance to come back and play in your hometown, even if your hometown is New Jersey. Like it's, I think for them, this is a huge opportunity to become even more of a national brand because they already recruit that way. And now they're going to have one of the two mega conferences with more money and more resources behind them. And a coach in Dan Lanning, who's already a darn good recruiter, I look at them as being a team that can really, really solidify themselves and become, you know, the power that they want to be in college football. I think you're right. And as far as the most to gain, I think uh, people are going to expect U USC to be good, UCLA to be what UCLA is. And if Washington punches above its weight, we're all going to be politely and, and delightfully surprised. But Oregon, to your point, who, by the way, wasn't relevant until I was like 13 years old, right, uh, is a national brand, which also just kind of underscores that, man, what if the kids knew how good Nebraska once was, which is another team that I think we just got to mention here. They get it right in 23. They go bowling in 23. Good luck stopping Nebraska, knowing what this conference is going to do and as far as the eyeballs that it's going to attract with these new teams, with Nebraska getting to go to the Coliseum, Nebraska getting to go to Autzen in Eugene, Nebraska getting to go to Seattle. I'm very excited about that. And man, look, this is always cool, always great to have Michael Cohen, our Big Ten writer here at Fox Sports, on the show. Mike, thanks so much for taking time to join here, or join us here on the number one college football show. Anytime, RJ. It's great to be here. My thanks again to Michael Cohen, who covers the Big Ten here for Fox. And that is our show. 
My thanks as always to our lead producer, Tyler Wojak. Our senior producer is Catherine Karaji. Our production assistant is Kiara Santana. Our leads of screening are Jack Lee and Torn Westfall. Our social media maven is Javion Duncan. I'm the host, RJ. We will see y'all next Wednesday. Doses.